recent USA Today article covered the interview of a, a well-known media personality and self-made billionaire. In fact, this man is the largest landowner in America with more than 1.6 million acres. It's a lot of grass to cut. I don't know about that. Half an acre is enough for me. The interviewer is kind of gushing beyond you know, all this wealth and accomplishments this man had seen in his life lies a deeper desire, he said in his interview of this man, that, that this man wants peace and harmony and understanding. Toward the end of the article, this individual man answered specific questions about personal salvation. He said, you know, almost every religion talks about a savior. But when you look in the mirror in the morning, when you're putting on your lipstick or shaving, you're looking at the savior. Nobody else is going to save you but yourself. You you almost expect to hear thunder and a bolt of lightning and 1.6 million acres back on the market. How do you say that? You are your own savior. Well, it might sound dramatic, but the core of what he said is actually the foundational belief undergirding just about all organized religion on the planet. You got to save yourself. Yeah, you believe in somebody or something, but you've got to save yourself. The core of what he said is actually a part of the depraved deception of human nature. In fact, to me, the dramatic thing about this man's comment was not that he thinks he is a savior, but that he thinks he can be, that he thinks he qualifies, that he thinks he's capable of saving himself, which, by the way, is very convenient, isn't it? Now you can get rid of God. Now you don't need him in a personal Accountable relationship with the Savior is no longer necessary because you've applied for the job of Messiah and you have hired yourself. Salvation then is whatever you want, whatever you think it is. It's one of the reasons you can pick up the newspaper, which you know you may do every once in a while, or, or a magazine you may subscribe to, and I you know, get a couple, and, and read the most bizarre statements all over the map about spirituality from very sincere people. Sincere people who have no basis for what they believe other than the fact that they believe it. Uh, Like this billionaire who said in this interview, I just do what I do because I believe it's right. I don't believe in God. I don't need the church. I don't need anything. I, I, I don't need anything that I can't control, which is the human heart. One of the things I periodically read is the Associated Press. Some of it just this month, in fact, revealed that more than 100,000 people living in Great Britain have recently downloaded certificates of de-baptism. They're getting de-baptized from the Internet. They're getting these certificates renouncing their Christian faith. How do you do that? Well, they're doing it. Or at least they think the certificate does that for them. That was something they didn't decide. They can't control it, so they don't want it. This internet initiative was launched by a group called the National Secular Society who reported they are now producing, and I quote, a certificate on parchment that they are selling for three pounds or roughly $4 a pop. And the movement is catching fire. Certificates of de-baptism are becoming all the rage, sweeping through heavily populated Roman Catholic areas 
and Anglican areas in Great Britain, Spain, and Italy. More than uh, a thousand people a month who were sprinkled as babies are now lining up and paying the fee to get their certificate of de-baptism. They're renouncing it. I don't want anything to do with God or religion that I didn't choose for myself. Although that news is alarming, it's, it's really only a small minority of people who want those certificates. The majority of the human race is actually the opposite. Uh, they want to add to whatever they can. They, they want to put in their spiritual bag whatever they think might connect them to God, not take away. So let's cover all the bases. Baptism, you bet. I mean, sprinkled, pour, upside down, dunk, what? I'll do it all. If I, I think that'll get me in. Um, what can it hurt to join the church? What can it hurt, you know, to use spiritual vocabulary? We got to be careful, right? We must be careful. There may be a God and we don't want to offend them. So just in case he's up there listening, but you still don't care about him, there, there is actually an option for you too. In fact, there's another internet option I learned about just a few days ago. A journal I subscribed to arrived and it said, if you don't have time to pray, but you're unwilling to ditch religion altogether, there is a solution. Prayer outsourcing. A Protestant organization allows you to subscribe, and this company's computers are programmed to recite prayers for you using text-to-speech software. Evidently, you need text-to-speech software because God can hear, but he can't read. So that's an important thing to remember. The advertisement continues, Protestants can subscribe and pay $3.95 a month for a computer proxy to recite the Lord's Prayer every day for you. Isn't that great? The site boldly says, show God you're serious. <laughs> That'll do it. $3.95 a month, Lord, that's serious. Even Catholics can purchase a complete rosary package for $50. Since this is a Protestant organization, Catholics get charged more. <laughs> oh, and this site has a prayer package for Muslims too, with the promise, and I'm quoting, we promised to turn our speakers toward Mecca. <laughs> and if you're not real sure about it, you can buy all three packages. You can cover it all. Is it any surprise that with a view that you can be your own savior, that you're going to have all kinds of convoluted views that are going to be religious hucksters and deceivers now using the internet to send you certificates so that you can denounce God or a computer password where you can now have a computer pray to God? But one of the reasons there are so many shortcuts, one of the reasons there are so many loopholes, so much confusion, is, is simply because while so many people want to cover their spiritual bases, they do not want to be spiritually obligated and certainly inconvenienced. Even among the so-called spiritually committed, more than half of the people uh, polled some time ago by the Gallup organization who said they believed in God, only a minor fraction of them believed the word of God had any kind of authority over their lives. We're talking about control again. Most of you are here today because... 
you are a part of that small fraction who believe that God has provided an answer in his word to how to find him, how to relate to him, how to talk to him. And if you're new around here, we're glad you're here. Uh, you, you ought to know we just meet weekly to, to reset our watches, so to speak, according to heavenly time. We meet to recalibrate our perspective according to God's wisdom. We refresh our minds with God's revealed truth. And what a delight it is. So just how does the Bible describe genuine connection with God? A genuine faith in God. You know, it's interesting to me as I was uh, studying the text once again back in Revelation, that one of the clearest definitions of genuine Christianity comes from the mouth of this angel we've been studying in Revelation 14 in the context of the tribulation period. So turn there, again, Revelation chapter 14. Now remember, this angel is going to deliver this message during a time when most of the world will be very religious. In fact, they're all going to just about, in unity, believe in the same God. They're going to worship him and his image. We know him to be the Antichrist. To those who worship him, accepting his name on their right hand or their forehead, the symbol of their allegiance, the sum of his name being 666, the angel, as you know, has nothing good or reassuring to say to them. Their idolatry and unbelief will lead to the wrath of God upon their lives. Their suffering in hell will be personal and terrible and painful and eternal. But then the angel shifts gears and encourages those on the planet who've come to faith in Christ after the rapture, who are believing in Christ by reassuring them of some wonderful truths. Look with me at verse 12 where we left off. Here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow with them. Let me unpack what he's saying here with three words that we'll, we'll use to provide an outline to guide our thinking. The first word that strikes us as we read this is the word perseverance. The angel says, blessed are these, who are these? Those who persevere, that is those who effectively do not capitulate and worship the Antichrist and in that worship are doomed. But the saint, and the New Testament uses the word saint for not perfect people, but forgiven people. You are called saints in the epistles. True believers will persevere. This is what theologians call the perseverance of the saints. Uh, This phrase reveals the wonderful truth that that genuine believers never need to fear losing their salvation or being lost to God once they're saved. Genuine salvation cannot be lost. Some would say that the very presence of this phrase the perseverance of the saints, means that the opposite then is possible. It would be possible for a saint not to persevere. 
That isn't true, and that doesn't have to be the case at all. When the Bible says that heaven is eternal, that doesn't mean that heaven could possibly be temporary, right? When the Bible says that Jesus is the only way to the Father, that doesn't mean the possibility exists that he is the way to someplace else. No. The perseverance of the saints is actually a positive doctrine. But immediately upon hearing it, most believers might think, oh, I wonder if I'm going to last. But it's actually a positive, comforting doctrine in the word of God that reinforces as a category all of the verses of scripture that tell us that God will lose none of his. John 18. From God's perspective, the perseverance of the saints means that God will lose not one of his children. From the believer's perspective, the perseverance of the saints means that the genuine believer will persevere in his relationship with Christ to the end. From God's perspective, this means God will not abandon his children. From the believer's perspective, it means that the Christian will not abandon God. Well, what about all those who fall away? You have that phrase appearing in a few passages of Scripture. One of them is in Mark, and, and there in, in that uh, wonderful story that describes for us uh, the different kinds of soils, the different kinds of people who hear the gospel, and how they respond is actually encouraging for those of us who would believe in the perseverance of the saints. Why? Because he talks about some seed fell on ground and, and it seemed to produce life, but it, it seemed to have something that would last. But over some period of time, things happen. It could be affliction. It could be uh, a desire to go back into a lifestyle of sin. It could be uh, persecution because of the claims of the gospel, because of the word. They fell away. Proving then that it really didn't take root. It wasn't genuine. Hebrews 6 speaks of the same issue. They have the appearances of salvation. They seemed interested. They, they were even seemingly delighted. They tasted the things of God. Like Christ who tasted death. Oh, but Christ tasted death and it was only temporary. They were even involved in some kind of participation with the things of God, but then they abandoned the gospel and they hardened their hearts. They said, we really don't believe that. Nothing more could be given to them. You couldn't say anything more to them. You can't teach them one new thing. There isn't some nugget. They say, I've heard it. I've seen it. I don't want it. And even if Christ were crucified all over again, it would make no difference to them. They're like Judas who for three years was associated with Christ, but he didn't believe in Christ. Certainly wasn't his Lord and Master. Judas, you remember, shocked everybody when Jesus informed his disciples in the upper room and he said, one of you will betray me. All of the, the other 11 didn't look at Judas and say, we knew it. We had our eye on you for, from the beginning. No. They all said what? Matthew 26, 22. Lord, is it, is it me? Is it me? There are those who associate with Christ but later abandon Christ. It seemed to take root, but over the course of time, they turned their backs upon God. Though we certainly don't believe baptism or sprinkling saves, they effectively said we want a certificate to denounce God. Like Templeton, a former preaching companion of 
Billy Graham. In fact, they together co-founded Youth for Christ International. In his middle years, Templeton walked away from God and abandoned any semblance of believing the gospel. He said, effectively, I don't believe any of it anymore. His last published book, if you can imagine, before he died, made headlines for its title alone. Simply this, Farewell to God. Subtitle, My Reasons for Rejecting the Christian Faith. Does that mean he lost his salvation? No, it means he never had it. And it took a while to show up. Just rehearse again the scene in your mind in Matthew 7, that awful scene of judgment where where many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not preach in your name? Did we not deliver the truth of your word? Did Did we not cast out demons? That is, didn't we in your name fight against the kingdom of darkness? Did we not perform miracles? And Jesus will say, I never what? I never knew you. He, he will not say, well, I used to know you, but not anymore. You used to be related to me, but not after you pulled that stunt. You used to belong to the family of God, but then that rebellious streak hit you, and you never got around to praying again for your salvation all over again. So tough luck. I never, he says, never, ever knew you. Wayne Grudem in his Systematic Theology provides these insightful words. He says, one of the purposes of this phrase, the perseverance of the saints, is not to make those who are trusting in Christ worry that at some time in the future you might fall away. Rather, it can be used to warn those who are thinking of walking away that if they do, this will be a strong indication that they were never saved in the first place. So it's a comfort to those who believe in Christ. God will not lose you. And it's a warning to those who walk away that they were never saved. Now be careful here. Be careful. This is a tricky, tricky thing. And don't get out your stopwatch and say, okay, he missed three Sundays, four and he's out. You know, he rotated off the usher, not serving anymore, didn't park in cars anymore. Yeah, we, we didn't think he was saved anyway. They did what? They said what? Well, they're obviously out. Listen, you didn't gain your salvation by being sinless, and you, you don't lose it by sinning. In fact, Paul preached the doctrine of abounding grace, and he knew people would get all riled up, which they certainly did. You're going to encourage people to sin with abandon if you preach God's abounding grace. No, he won't. Grace in the life of a genuine believer does not lead the believer to want to go sin. It leads the believer to want to please God out of gratitude for his grace. The person who says, oh, I'm saved now. Well, I can go back to the world. Needs to listen to this angel. The truth is you sin after salvation. Have you discovered that yet? How many of you sinned this last week? Hold your hands up. I'm going (laughs) to. Did you have to get saved all over again? If you had to get saved all over again, every time you sinned, How often would you have to be saved? This leads to the doctrine within the Roman Catholic Church of the last rites. You bring a guy right up to the edge of death, right before it, and you give him the last rites to absolve his sins, and hopefully he won't sin between there and death. 
Compare Scripture with Scripture. Here's one. John wrote in 1 John 2, 1, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. In other words, I'm instructing you so that you'll say no to sin. The Christian can say no to sin. But if anybody sins, speaking to believers, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. If anyone sins, remember your advocate, Jesus Christ, never sins, and he stands as your advocate, defending you, as it were, before the justice of God's jury. Ladies and gentlemen, the perseverance of the saints is in the final analysis, the perseverance of the Savior. So Paul would, he would talk about how there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Jesus Christ guards us. Jesus Christ intercedes for us. He he guides us. He holds us firmly in his hand. He instructs us. He empowers us. He he enables us. He, He disciplines us. He leads us. And then he will complete us in the day we see him. Philippians 1, 6. The perseverance of the saints is not to our glory. It is to the glory of of Christ. And so may this encourage those of you who believe in him. You will persevere to the end. And for those of you who are even perhaps now thinking of walking away from him, it may be a sign that you never did belong and you've been deceived. There's another word beyond the word perseverance here in this text. It is the word obedience. This is where it gets even more personal. John writes, here is the perseverance of the saints. Who are they? They're the ones who keep the commandments of God. In other words, the genuine believer is one who keeps the commandments of God. Now, there are some who would add to the end of this phrase the words, without failure. If you look back at your text, you'll not find those words. This is a a participle from the Greek word tereo. It it, it means to observe. You, You could have the idea of pursuit, You may fail at the standard, but you don't throw the standard away. His commandments are your desire. His word is your manual. You want to obey him and it troubles you when you do not, right? In fact, one of the differences between a true believer and a false believer is not that the true believer never sins and the false believer does. The difference is that while both of them may sin, the genuine believer is disturbed by it. He's troubled by his sinfulness. He agonizes over his failure. He hurts that he hurt his fellowship with God his Father. And and the, the false believer isn't troubled except for maybe troubling consequences. Yeah, that's kind of troublesome. But other than that, it's really not a problem. Let's not beg off too quickly. While obedience is not a condition to salvation, obedience is an evidence of salvation. I like the way one person put it. You may have heard this put this way. If you were arrested for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you in a court of law? Any evidence? What have they tailed you this week? Watched you? Would there be evidence? What have they got into your computer or your files? What have they sat by your Bible and waited? What if they, what if they interviewed people you work with? What if they went along on some dates? 
you had. Then you were hauled into court on the basis of that evidence would they convict you for being a Christian. Anybody who really doesn't want to obey God, who doesn't care about the word, who lives however they want to live, is in need of a warning from this angel. I agree with one author who who said this, obedience and genuine faith are mutually interpreting. Obedience involves faith, and faith involves obedience. Faith and obedience are not separate stages of the Christian experience. This is Paul's thought in Ephesians 2.10 when he wrote to them, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Listen, even though genuine faith is not the result of works, genuine faith, what? Works. Genuine faith works. And the genuine believer lives with a daily sense of his failure in keeping the commandments. He doesn't throw away the commandments. He doesn't throw away the lists. He doesn't throw away a desire for holy living because, well, you know, every day I fail. No, he hungers and yearns to follow after God. And when he doesn't meet the standard, he daily confesses to his Savior, thank you, you are my advocate. Now, forgive me for what I've just done to hurt you or your name. See, that's an evidence of a genuine faith. It's a desire to keep and a pursuit in keeping the commandments. I'm reading as I've shared with you. In fact, one of the reasons I read widely is to be able to share things with you. The biography of William Carey who lamented his oft-failing heart and desire for Christ This man who we call today, 200 plus years later, the father of modern missions, went to India. Listen as he wrote in his journal, which he never assumed we'd ever be reading. In 1793, in August, he wrote, I have reason to lament over a barrenness of my soul. And I am sometimes much discouraged. For if I am so dead, how can I expect to be of any use among the lost? On January 22nd of 1794, he wrote in his journal, I wish I had more of God in my soul and felt more submission to his will. This this would set me above all things. You ever felt that frustration? On one occasion, he became so sick. In fact, after finishing the second revision of his Bengali Bible, a massive accomplishment, he got sick. In fact, they thought he'd die, and they assumed that that Bengali Bible was his crowning achievement. But he rallied, went on to serve many more years. But as soon as he got off his sickbed, he said to one of his missionary partners, he said, now I shall serve Christ. I have been such a loiterer. <laughs> Later, he wrote in his journal, my soul is a jungle when it ought to be a garden. I can scarcely tell whether I have the grace of God or not. How shall I help India with so little godliness myself? He agonized before the Lord when he wrote, My crime is spiritual stupidity. I am perhaps the most inconsistent, cold creature that ever possessed the grace of Christ. I have no love, O God. If God uses me, none need despair. 
<laughs> Can you imagine? Imagine what his supporting pastors would think. You don't talk like this and raise money for missions. You got to be on top of it. You got to be, you're, you're, you're there. You're, you're winning the world. No doubts. No trouble. No agony. Listen to this man. When you sin, do you feel like that? When you walk out of fellowship with the Lord, do you struggle with how little of his grace is evident in your life? Don't you? I hope you do. It becomes sweet evidence that you long for his approval and so berate yourself for your failure like Paul who said, Oh, wretched man that I am. But do you have to be born again all over again? No. In fact, the agony you feel over your inconsistency and your sin is among the evidences that you are genuinely converted. I would be troubled if you weren't troubled by your sin. There's a third word. It's the word reliance. At least that's the word that comes to my mind as I look at the text. Another mark of a genuine believer is that they rely upon the Savior alone for their salvation. Look how he writes it. These saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. Now, in this immediate context, it means they refuse to put their faith in the Antichrist. They're not going to switch loyalties and start obeying this man with his, with his image displayed in the holy place. They refuse to put their faith like that billionaire I mentioned earlier in themselves. They don't consider themselves their savior. Their faith here is committed to the object of their faith, which is Christ himself. And, and it becomes not some vague belief like people who today talk, yeah, I got faith, I got faith. What? What do you have faith in? Clean water? I have faith in God. Well, well, which one? I have faith in Jesus, the text says. There we go. That would be saving faith. And they have loyal faith in him. You know, I've met people who have nothing to do with Jesus Christ. But they believe they're on their way to heaven. Why? Because they prayed a prayer at an evangelistic rally. Or they prayed a prayer when they were little. Or they prayed a prayer when they walked the aisle at a church. Or, or, or when they got baptized. Or maybe in front of a television a program. And this is where perhaps eternal security, as it is coined, communicates a watered down version of perseverance and obedience and loyalty. Now in case you're wondering, I believe in eternal security. Now, don't be confused. It is impossible to be called by the Father, born again from spiritual death unto life, sealed by the Spirit, indwelled by God, forgiven of all my sin, past, present, and future, and then be uncalled, unborn, unsealed, and unforgiven. And worse yet, the thought that maybe after all of that, you'd give it away. I don't think I want it, like a sweater that doesn't fit you anymore. I'll get rid of that. No, no, no. If you want to get rid of it, whoever wants to give it away never had it. I fear the church in holding 
to its version of eternal security can effectively tell people that if they've prayed some prayer in the past, it doesn't, mean, it doesn't matter how you're living. It doesn't matter what's transpired over the last 20 years. You got that card. You've got that five-year-old statement. You've got that baptism. You've got that membership. Don't worry about anything else. Listen, there is a difference, a vast difference, in, in saying that people cannot lose their salvation because of sinning. And saying that unrepentant sinners who do not care about Christ or his word or his church or his will don't ever need to wonder about their salvation because they prayed a prayer. There's a, there's a vast difference in those two people. This is in this text a present, active loyalty to the cross work of Christ. And the person who says, I used to believe in Jesus, but not anymore, but I'm going to heaven because I prayed. No, warn them, warn them to examine the genuineness of their faith. That's why Paul told the Corinthians who are accommodating immorality in the church, who are spiritually immature, who are divisive. He said to them in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Is he trying to get people to doubt their salvation? No, he's wanting people to make sure their faith is genuine. What are the evidences? What's your life like? What's your belief in? Are you following after Christ? Now that doesn't mean a Christian can't backslide. I do it daily. In case you're wondering, every day is resisting sin, perhaps even failing and confession and acknowledgement of Christ, my advocate. It doesn't mean that a believer can't disobey the Lord or even walk away from the Lord for a season. The disciples did that. But, but listen, the individual who says they were once a Christian but are now happily contentedly reunited with the world and the flesh and the devil never came to Christ to begin with. And the church does them a grave disservice to say, well, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. The one who says, I used to have faith in Christ, but now I don't believe in him anymore, never was a genuine believer. You know, I'll never forget an illustration of this in my own young life. In fact, I was a freshman in college. Bible college. I, I was walking down the sidewalk of the little town near the small Bible college I was attending. And a man dressed in old clothes and an old overcoat, matted hair, stepped out of, the, out of an alley and came up to me and said, Hey friend, can you spare some money? I said, Well, I'm a student here at the Bible college, which means I don't have any money. He said, well, are you sure you can't spare some change? I said, listen, I don't have a dime in my pocket. But I've got something that will last longer than spare change I might have had. He said, well, what's that? And I said, a relationship with Jesus Christ that's living and personal. He seemed interested. So I began to share the gospel with him. On that sidewalk downtown, he listened attentively. After about 30 minutes or so, I said to him, do you understand everything I've told you? He said, I do. 
I said, would you like to pray to give your life to Jesus Christ and receive from him forgiveness and eternal life? And he said, I would. I thought, this is too easy. So I said, well, will you kneel with me on the sidewalk right here downtown? He said, I will. We get down on our knees. I put my arm around his shoulder and listened to him pray a glorious prayer of conversion. I mean, I, I got to admit to you, I was so thrilled. I, I couldn't believe I, I was. I couldn't wait to get back to the dorm and tell the guys we had another great awakening that was just now starting. Tears in this man's eyes. He got up. We stood. He dried the tears from his eyes. He wiped them away, and then he said, "Can you spare some money?" I said, "I don't." I don't have any, but I can take you to the Union Mission. They'll have food for you and a place to say, and I will work with you to begin your, your life in Christ. And his whole face clouded over, his brow furrowed. And he said, you mean you don't have any money for me? I said, no, I don't, I don't have any money. And he unleashed a tirade of cursing and swearing I've yet to hear again. And he walked away, and with every step, he cursed God, he cursed Jesus, and he cursed me. I have never seen such a short distance of time between the prayer and apostasy. But I can tell you I have seen many more with not much distance between a prayer and an abandonment of Christ and a return to the world. They came to church for, for a season. They went through the motions. I think our world is filled with this. They, in the end, only want the church because of what they get from it. It's a place to network. You know, they, they, they wanted potential clients. They came looking for personal affirmation. They came to be served. Maybe they even came looking for a spouse and found him or her and then quickly abandoned their religious affections. They came because they wanted to be viewed as respectable. They, they came because it looked good on their community profile. They came because they were Americans. You know, what about Jesus Christ? He was never the attraction. His name was affirmed only because it might be to their advantage. Listen, they are no different than a drunk praying a prayer to get some money. They only look more respectable. They only smell better. They only drive their own car. They are just as lost and just as deceived. What Jesus Christ's name could offer them on earth is their only attraction. This is not active, loyal faith in Jesus. And maybe the angel is warning you today. He says, those who genuinely believe Christ will remain the object of their faith for salvation to the end. Can you imagine how encouraging this would be to these tribulation saints. I mean, they have no advantage to being a Christian. None whatsoever. They're going to die because of it. 
these horrific days, which will more than likely end with, for most of them, martyrdom. They will die in their faith. But their genuine faith will be revealed even with that great sacrifice. They will not abandon Christ and worship another God. Now for them, and frankly for all of us, what happens next is a timeless promise from heaven. And let me quickly go through this. Just this last verse. Verse 13, I heard a voice from heaven saying, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, so that they may rest from their labors. Here's the first promise. It's rest. The second is reward. The first is the promise of rest. The word is kapon. It it, it describes hard, difficult, exhausting, tiring, toiling work. Work not to gain entrance into heaven, but working for the glory of Christ because you are. By the way, this word does not mean you rest from activity. There's going to be a lot of activity in the kingdom, and you and I are going to be able to serve Christ for a thousand years. Can you imagine the economy on earth? And you will be a co-regent with the Savior. We'll talk about that when we get to the portion of Revelation that describes the kingdom of God. I can't wait to get there. I wish I could hurry up so we could just go ahead and get there. We're not going to rest from activity. The word can be used, and this may be helpful, to refer to irritation and, and trouble. You're, you're going you're gonna to be relieved of irritation. Do you have any of those? You're going to be relieved of annoyances. Do you have a few of those? And, and in the context of serving God, we annoy ourselves, don't we? We're our biggest problem. The biggest problem I have on the planet is me. Some of you are thinking, you were going to say my name. No, I wasn't. It's me. I'm the biggest problem I have. My fallen flesh is gone. I'm glorified. So will you be. And we will be able to serve Christ without the irritations of ourselves. Won't that be glorious? And then we have this promise of reward. John writes, for their deeds follow after them. Listen, it's going to be reward enough just to be in the presence of our, our Lord, to serve him in the kingdom And then anticipate a new heaven and a new earth forever. What more could we want? And yet in the middle of all of that, we're given the promise of such amazing graciousness to us and condescension. As Hebrews says, God is not unjust so as to forget your work. Ergos, same word used here. He isn't going to forget anything you've done for him. Or anything you've done for character's sake. Any right thing. And having ministered and still ministering to the saints, what grace. Listen, the perseverance of the saints is really the perseverance of the Savior. The reward for the saints is really the rewarding of the Savior's work through us. It's all Him. No wonder we will give them back. They belong to you. I'm convinced on this day when He completes in us what He's promised and we're in His presence. We will simply weep over the truths that now engulf us there in his presence as we grasp the eternal significance that we have been saved from the wrath of God. And we have been saved for the worship 
and, and service of God. We have been saved from somewhere that is hideous. When we were saved by someone who is spotless, who saved us for some place that is glorious. Amen? This is the message of this angel. It comforts those and encourages those who do believe. You will not be lost. It warns those to test their faith to see if they in fact do indeed believe. Thank you.